word this morning, and I am genuinely excited about that. But I am pleased to tell you, like uh, our uh, friend Brian Hughes come up here, and uh, you guys, uh, we were actually chatting about this this week, that sometimes you can be part of the church a long time, and there's so many things that go on in life and in, in our relationships, and there's aspects of it that are actually really quite important, but we don't get opportunities to be exposed to them. And one of them is actually about how the church is led. And uh, not all churches are led in the same way. Some churches have committees, and they've got boards of deacons and demons. I'm not entirely sure which, but they have them in their church. Um, and uh, the elders actually report and, and have to kind of be vetted by the deacons. They even, get, depending on what they get to preach and those sorts of things. And uh, we just don't believe that uh, we, pa- we need to find a new pattern. We believe that what we need to do is find the pattern of Scripture. And in Philippians chapter 1 and uh, the first few verses there, Paul writes, and he, and he writes to the church, and he kind of describes the whole picture. He says, to the saints, this is all of us, everyone that is born again is a saint. We've been, uh, that is good news indeed, that we have become saints, so you, are, you can now call yourself Ken Sarai. You don't have to wait. Well, if you don't have to use his name. You can use your own name. But you don't have to wait until one day that you've died and they can verify that you did a miracle. You can be St. Marion right now or St. Matt or whatever it is. Um, so Paul writes and he addresses all of us. And then he addresses within the group of saints two other groups, the deacons and the overseers. And um, overseers is a word in the Greek that we get the word bishop from. And we don't believe that bishops should have pink hoses on their heads and uh, walk down the wrong road. Um, bishop actually, the word overseer refers to the function, how they carry out their work. They, they oversee the church. Well, they don't do all that everything in Catholic. And, um, and they're responsible for setting the direction of the church. Where are we going? What is our vision, our mission? The doctrine of the church. They, they, it's not like we create doctrine. Number two, we support the doctrine of Scripture. We guard it. And uh, we thank for the gifts of Scripture. So if there are situations that arise that require leadership intervention, it's not a free-for-all, not everybody just kind of hasn't been able to just fill everybody out of the church, it's not like that, like someone reaching the, you stole my parking brake, and you're out the church, well, it's not like that type thing, <laughs> instead God leads that process of restoration and discipline and intervention from the elders, and um, this overseer team in this church is made up of um, Ryan, Matt, myself, Patrick, and John Watkinson, and um, Wayne Jones are a new group, and Heron up until recently, and they've got a group as well. And um, uh, eldership is that incredible thing. It truly is. So I cannot tell you how many ways it has enriched my life. It is also a burden. And I'm not saying it's a bigger burden than anything, any other role that anybody else has. Honestly, life is too quick. Life is hard. And so I don't want you to in any way ever feel sorry for us or any eldership. So it's a great privilege to do this. It is a burden, and um, actually one of the things we've realized is that, um, especially for the guys that are in marketing things, that are marketplace elders and carrying spiritual things, there's going to be times and times they're going to need to take a sabbatical over college, which is extremely important, um, no work, nothing like that, but particularly with their life, to take a sabbatical, strong eldership responsibility to the church, and, uh, and uh, Ryan and Keith have come and uh, are going to be in, in that position, they're going to take a sabbatical. They've been in eldership now um, uh, for five years and three months. So they came from Calvary they were in eldership. It's a, a long time um, carrying that um, weight, I suppose. It is an invisible pressure. Paul writes and says, don't one or two Ken and I inwardly burn. And uh, I don't know how that actually translates, but just think of the next time you sin, I'm burning inwardly. That's pretty heavy, you know what I mean? So. There are these spiritual realities. Or he writes to one church and he says, I'm in again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. Because they've kind of got waylaid. And so there's this assuring this mother-father kind of um, responsibility. You're not Jesus. He didn't die for you. But we do carry that weight. And so we just want to honor Ryan and Keith right now. And we want to release them. Having They're not stepping off eldership. They're stepping aside from eldership. And in uh, two months' time, which is the end of September, Ryan and I will meet together and see um, what is your situation, what is your family situation there. And we will have a conversation with the senior elders about whether they should um, keep on eldership or whether the preaching role is an opportunity for them to um, have preaching or eldership aside from eldership. So, um, so this is not 
coming out of the house of God of ten thousand, and stretching his hands out to ten and he was demons. You know what I mean? Um, and just to be absolutely and utterly clear, in case somebody from one of those media clients, this there is, <laughs> and I know who you are. There is no sin. There is no falling out. Uh, our loved ones, we we agree with you. We'll continue to bring. Um, somebody wears a word of knowledge. Ryan will start getting involved in the worship. They're not withdrawing. They're going to be pressing it even more. They're just, um, we do want you to be aware because they have been carried this responsibility and they're setting it down. We're still held, and Elvis, the team is faithful to carry it, but just that we want to be faithful. So why don't you stand with me, please? And um, we're just going to love upon them. Um, you need to find your voice. You need to write in your hand. What have you asked? <laughs> I'm going to ask you to give him a, a, a round of applause. You can leave his hand as broken, but please can't do that. Let's appreciate them. Why don't you stretch your hands out to them and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for Ryan and Sue Ndiema. Obviously, they've been great in their traveling. We thank you for the family who uh, whose life is a perfect example of what the gospel should be like. Uh, thank you that there's never been any pressures on their God, that their love for you, their love for your people, um, their integrity, Lord God, their compassion for people. I think of, I think of uh, Samuel at the end of his life making that declaration. I've never taken anyone's donkey or coveted it. And uh, I think Sue and Ryan as well, Lord God, have never coveted our donkeys. And, um, but I mention it only, Lord God, that we, that we commend them to you, Lord God. Commend them to you, Lord God. We pray that, that this family would find rest and restoration. And, uh, Father, that if there is another seat for Elvis at the head of them, that comes with um, full of life and full of joy, Lord God. And just, it's just a relief over them in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, wonderful, everyone. You can grab a seat. You're going to take your babies. Yes, Liam. Okay. Great to be here. Who brought their paper Bibles this week? Actual, real Bibles. There we go. You get double points. We've just got extra bathroom in heaven. Isn't that amazing? It just retells your heavenly bathroom. No, I'm only joking. That's bad theology. I'm going to break the, exactly that theology today. I'm preaching today on the gospel. And if I had a title for my preach, it would be um, Refusing to Nullify the Grace of God. And I, um, I, I want to be... I almost want to speak without notes today because there is this essence is um, honestly of such importance that if we don't get this, we don't get anything. Imagine you, your life kind of, you're living your life and you, like all of us, you're busy with so many things. So many things are pretty important, like making sure you pay those bills on time, which is good, or making sure you put the savings aside for that, or you've got to go, you get your exercise in and so on and so forth. Think of the many things you done your assessments at work and your life's in order and, and, and you're busy filling all those things and then suddenly you get the news that you have to face a disease. Then the things that are really important, and they are, I'm not saying they're not important, they really are important than all those other things, just fade away. And there's only one thing at that time that really seems important and that's actually, am I going to live? And the gospel's a little bit like that. It's not that when we hear the gospel like nothing, uh, as if nothing else matters. Of course, every normal life matters when we preach about the gospel. But Jesus once said this. He says, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world? The whole world. May everything, every scheme you could ever have, your perfect health and perfect body that you would imagine when you look in the mirror and you see somebody's morning expressions and things like that, your perfect relationship, your perfect bank account. What does it matter if you gain all of that if you take this little bit of it? And there's got to be at least a few moments in our lives when we stop and we ask the question, probably the most important question, like what really matters? And the gospel is that. And I'm, I'm not even talking about healing in our bodies, as important as that is, because you can get healed of the most incredible disease and still you're going to die. And if your soul, if you haven't, paid attention to our souls and the eternal destination of our souls, and probably even more profoundly, what are our souls made for? Who are we? Who is God and how do we relate to Him? And I think we miss out on that. That's what I'm talking about today. Let me pray and I'll bow down.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the great privilege that I even get to stand up here today and talk about something that matters um, so much. I pray that I would not get in the way of it. I pray that your word would come through me into the hearts of your people. I pray that those that are born again, that are sitting here, they know that they're saved, that they're Christians, and the opportunity to see more of you and more of your gospel. Your word says that we deliver gifts and, and, and deliver this the heights of your love, the gift of your love, the worth of your love, the gift of your love. All eternity we can explore, and I pray that we would explore it even more um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the most embarrassing moment? Just think about that for a second. I'm, uh, I'm not going to invite you to think of that squared. I'm going to share two of my most embarrassing moments with you. One, when I was a teenager, I think about 18 or 19, I was at a church with people that I thought were my friends. Um, actually, this guy is still my friend today, amazingly enough. His name is Mike Ware. And um, he, I, was, I was wearing tracksuit pants. It was the 80s. People didn't even know what pants those days. I, I don't know if there's any reason ever to wear tracksuit pants anymore. If you're wearing them this morning, you're going to be quite self-conscious now. But anyway, I was wearing them. I was standing there drinking my cup of tea in the auditorium with everybody gathered around. So I'm this teenage boy drinking tea in my tracksuit pants with everybody gathered around. And guess what my mate did to me? He pantsed me. He pantsed me. He pulled my pants down in front of everybody like this. Luckily, I had on a tight pair of undies and tidy whities and so at least I was covered. But I had my tea in my hand, and it wasn't like I could just grab it. Like if you have my pants like this, so I had to go look for a table like this, put my tea down, and then pull my pants up. And uh, you can imagine what that felt like for a for me. It is a miracle that I'm still friends with Mike. But that embarrassing moment was nothing compared to one that will take place just years later. I was uh, married by this point. I was um, um, I was an elder kid in a, in a in a church that I would eventually be in, in Durban for that day stage of time. And I was on a, something called church planting training. So we would, for three months, we'd gone away. We were traveling from one church to the next. I think we lived in our car, me, Linda, and uh, at that point, only Matthew and Mike really knew each other. And uh, we would go to each other's church, stay with families in the church, um, would lead us to the church, introduce us to our lives, tell us about how they led the church and those kinds of things. It was an amazing time. We learned a lot. But it was obviously a time until God really was at the inward part of who we are and say, hey, we can obviously just do some other stuff. So one day we, we were traveling together for about a, for two months or something like that, me plus 20 other guys. Um, and I, love, I do love being around people, some people. We love being bored. Some people just love being a little bit bored. And there was this one guy on the team. His name was Nick Colton. So I hope you hear him. And, um, and Nick was actually just seemed a lot like me. I mean, he's right over. That's probably why we irritated each other. But we were playing, uh, we, had a, the, we were in this church that had an auditorium about four or five, maybe ten times. It was big. It was a really big space. And we were playing touch rugby during one of our breaks in our church. It was a really short church. And um, what Nick would do was, like, whenever the game, as the game was going, he would change the rules. And uh, that's my job. I change the rules, not Nick. You know what I mean? And so Nick would change the rules, and I can remember getting more and more angry as that happened. And eventually I said to him, I picked up rugby with Nick, I said, Nick, you can't do this. And I threw the ball to the ground, and, and I walked away like this, and I stormed off. And I went and sat down on my chair for the next session that would take place. And I felt like I'm, like, I'm so justified in this righteous anger. I actually want to get away from Nick and say, God, just take it lightly there and then, because I know I'm right. And I'm sitting there, and this older guy comes out from the auditorium. The game's over now. And he comes over, and, and I see him walking towards me, and he's leaning in. I'm thinking, I already said I'm sorry. He's going to go, thanks for saying what you did. You know what I mean? It's like, and he leans in and he goes, so what? I go, I told you. And I remember thinking, there's a guy in the Bible called Korah, and it says that the world, the, the giant opened up and swallowed him. And at that moment, I thought, oh, please don't let him fall. Let's just take you right now, Lord. I was so embarrassed. In fact, even when I think about it today, I'm a little bit embarrassed, not before you, but before those guys that I behaved in that way. Um, somebody who is saying, God, please use me to go and lead your people, and I'm losing my cool because the rules of the game are changing. And I tell you these stories because there's somebody in the Bible that I can relate to because he always embarrassed himself. His name was Peter, the great apostle. Peter had this um, habit of making one mistake after another, and um, sadly for him, a whole lot of the ministry would have been destroyed. 
that they arrived for an eternity. And the book of Galatians is called, I conclude in most embarrassing moments. And it's not in a like being tense kind of weird or embarrassing. It's sort of like I make decisions that would reveal the very weakness of character in us that should have been shifted. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So last week, we, I preached out of Galatians chapter 4, and I preached on the, the fact that there are two covenants. What happens in this text in Galatians 4, and we'll stay there, I think, for the sake of time for a while, is Paul compares these two women, the, the wife of Abraham and the kind of, um, the, I call her a concubine, she wasn't really, but a, a Sarah's um, servant woman that Abraham slept with and had a child with, and then Ishmael was born of her, and then Isaac was born of Sarah. And he says, as he describes it, that they represent two covenants. Hagar, he says, he actually says, Hagar is Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was the mountain where Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments. It was the place where the law was given to Israel. And I don't know if you remember the scene. It's quite a crazy story. Go, go read it in Exodus. But there's the account of what took place at Mount Sinai as the law was given. And Paul says this. He says, he says, Hagar is Mount Sinai, and he says, Jerusalem. He doesn't mean Jerusalem in 2010. He doesn't mean Jerusalem in whatever Jesus returns. He means Jerusalem that, was, that they were living in those times. And the nature of that Jerusalem was that they were under Roman occupation. They were bound by this oppressive force. Not only that, but they were bound by religious leaders. It was a, it was a city of bondage. And this old covenant represents bondage and oppression and distance. Distance between men, there were hierarchies, there was effectively a caste system in place. There were the most important, and then there were the least important. There were the, the Jews, and then there were the Gentiles. There was this separation between men and women. There was also distance between man and woman. There was no connection. And then Paul says that, that Isaac, who's the son of promise, born not in a natural way. So the child that Ishmael was born because Abraham had sex with this virile young woman called um, Hagar, who we saw last week was like Miss Egypt. And, and, it, and it, that's what happened. They had sex. Now, if you didn't know, because this is a sort of pure sex education as well, that if you end up in a sexual relationship with somebody, there's a good likelihood they'll fall pregnant. It wasn't supernatural. It wasn't wondrous. It was natural and normal. And that's what they did. But Isaac is born to Sarah, who was 90 years old. And the Bible says she was, she was as if dead. So the menstrual cycle would have stopped a long time ago. She would have been through menopause. I don't know anything about this. I'm just telling you what I've overheard in conversation. And, um, and in other words, she was, she was, there was no possible way for her to bear a child until she falls pregnant from intimacy with Abraham, but she falls pregnant with Isaac, who is the son of the promise, the miracle man. And he says, that represents the new covenant and the new Jerusalem, which is above. Not, not a physical city, but the promise of this eternal life that we're going to have that comes not by our natural effort, by our plans, but by God's miraculous working power. And Paul um, repeats at the end of that passage, um, or maybe this passage, yeah, further on in it, he speaks about the fact that um, he's just passed out from labor. And he makes the point that, that, this, that we, it's incompatible to try and find acceptance with God and righteousness um, if, if we're going down that road, it means we're not going down this road, which you find in this situation as well. They, they, they go in opposite directions. This one, this, is, this leads us away from grace, and this leads us away from the law. You can't be on both paths at the same time. At some point, we come to a fork in the road. We've got to make a decision. Am I going to depend upon myself and my strength and my rules and keeping this and keeping that? Or am I going to give up something completely on that? choose the way of God. And that's what God, that's what Paul is talking about. It's impossible. So let's go back to Peter and his most embarrassing moment. It's great telling these stories, but most embarrassing story is Ishmael versus you. So we know Peter had uh, given up on the law and had given himself to Christ. He had come to salvation in Christ. And we know this because we can read about it in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. And um, we, we see this in, um, in the Gospels where Peter was uh, Jesus came to wash the feet of the disciples, and he said, like, I need to wash your feet. And Peter says, no way will you wash my feet. And then Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, unless I clean your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter, he's always like this. Like, there's nothing wrong with washing my feet. Wash my whole body. Like, I'm, I'm ready now. Like this. And, uh, and Jesus says, you're already clean. Those are things you need to clean your feet. And so he allows him to wash his feet. He, he swims away. And on the, on the day 
Isaiah triggers that Heidi Klum pulled out of that pity. He stands up and he preaches this incredible gospel that 3,000 are saved in one day. And he is, he has trusted in Christ as his Lord and his Savior. And then this is some years later, maybe maybe 10 years after Pentecost. He's in Antioch. Antioch is this town in the north of Jerusalem, um, up in the middle of Asia Minor. And revival is taking place in this town. We read about that in Acts chapter 11. Uh, Barnabas and John being sent there by the apostles. And, and I love this phrase. And when he came to this new community that had been formed by the Spirit, out of 20 preachers, he says, he saw the evidence of God's grace. And so God's, God was at work in the midst of this. And uh, Peter was in this community. It was also after Acts chapter 10. Now in Acts chapter 10, Peter, who's a certain Jewish boy, is, um, is um, invited by God. Uh, he has a vision of all this food laid out in front of him by um, pork chops and bacon and, and pork ribs and what it, you know, what, all the good stuff. You know, there is some other stuff as well, like weird animals and things like that. But I thought it was lobsters and mm, crayfish, all those things. And uh, for the Jew, those are unclean foods. And God says, get up and eat. And I would have been all over that in like a rant. But Peter says, no, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. He's born again. He belongs to Christ. He's trusted the finished work by God. I'm not going to touch that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't violate that. And so God says to him, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Three times it happens. Then he says, you're going to get a knock on your door. It happens. It, uh, some guys arrive to capture Cornelius. He takes a Gentile, not a Jew, and says, can you come to our house? And Cornelius is a Jew, but he's a Gentile. And now the Jew wouldn't have gone into the house of a Gentile. It wasn't those days that they stepped in. They would have stood outside or perhaps spoken and never gone into the house. Now Peter's been told by God he must go. And then this miraculous thing happens while he's in the house of a Gentile. So if you didn't know, that's us. We are the Gentiles. While he's in the house of a Gentile, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon these believers in the same way that it's poured out upon you. And God is saying in the most emphatic way, these two are my sheep. It's a miraculous, wonderful thing. Now, Peter's in Antioch. He's hanging around with these Gentile believers. They're no longer being separated from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, then it happens. A Jew comes up to Jerusalem. I don't know, maybe they were influential. Maybe they were well-known. Maybe they carried um, real authority from their old life. They, they too had come to Christ. But they, you know what it's like? Here you imagine, imagine Peter. Peter's a fisherman. If he had gone to Jerusalem as a fisherman and he had seen one of these high Jews, he would have, they wouldn't have even given him the time of day. Now he's a fisherman with the apostles, one that is trusted. He's such a he's my shadow. Think about that. I've got it going on. Like Peter confronts preaching the consciences, the reserved parts of the faith, all that stuff. So then these Jewish guys come along. They impressed. Peter thinks like, I can do it, Peter. I'm right up there with them. And he and you can just imagine these Jewish Christians like looking down their nose at anybody that that is um, eating with unclean people, eating or um, ignoring the ceremonial law, not washing their hands in the right ways before they eat and washing the plates and all that sort of eating wrong food. And Peter now, in order to ingratiate himself, I suppose, to these people or, or be drawn back into the life that he's been left behind, ends up no longer eating with the Gentiles. But it comes time to find a table to carry this pail like this for, for dinner. And they see the table of the Gentiles. They go, hey, please come sit here. They don't even say, here you go. And he walks up like this. And he goes and sits with whatever this Jewish man's at. And he's sitting with them. And he's, and he's, and now he's, and he's talking like he's just like Jesus. And they're going to give a, you know, Jesus got to say that. Pause it. Pause late for dinner that night. And he sits them. And he's looking at this situation. And he gets a nice advice. You must be sitting with the Gentiles. That's what this guy says. And if you think you might fight with that Peter today, Instead, he goes different. He says, excuse me, excuse me. He bangs on the table. Excuse me, everyone. Everyone stops eating. They put down their, their, um, their bacon rind on the one table. The other table, they put down whatever the kosher food is. And he goes, Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then he starts to speak about Peter's mistake. And, and here's a fisherman that thinks he's somebody caught the blood. He figures, straight on, what is he doing to me like this? And if you go read Galatians chapter 2, where this takes place, it's uncertain whether the quotation marks, because I don't actually have quotation marks in the original text, ends in verse 14 when Peter rebukes him, or if it carries on all the way to verse 21. I'm going to assume today that it goes all the way to verse 31. And so as I read this from 15 to 21, can you imagine Peter sitting at his table, 
and this, all the important Jews around, the Gentiles that have been sitting wondering why suddenly they wouldn't get enough to eat with Peter, and Paul begins to share this. Now, in case you didn't bring your paper Bible, I've organized a paper for you, so you grab this. And there are three different translations. In fact, there's two translations of the Bible here and one interpretation. Now, these little bit of Bible is a world-to-world translation of the Bible. If you want to study the Bible, I come up with a better translation for you because there are other really equally good translations. This is the one that I use. If you want to just read the Bible, borrow some readers, the New Living Translation is a, is a just a phrase-by-phrase translation. So take the idea and uh, you translate and you get the idea. It can, this can be a little bit complicated, especially if you have a certain language and you read that in the NLT. It's really good beautiful reading for that. The, the message is not a translation of scripture. It's like somebody, um, it's giving you, it says, this is what I think this is saying. And so he's putting his ideas on it. I agree with almost everything that he says. He's, a, he's taking a Greek, he's a learned man, all that sort of stuff. But it is still a man's opinion after his experience. So we don't call this a translation, we call this a paraphrase and an interpretation. But it's to use it in everyday language, and that's what makes it powerful doesn't sound like you're reading from, and thus saith the Lord, that thou must gather them under this, and all of a sudden, if you've got to listen, that can be really difficult, so so then we go to the message. So I'm going to read from the message up to verse um, 16, then I'm going to jump to the New Living Translation, 17 and 18, and then back to the message, okay, because I don't think he's being helped by in 17 and 18, and so uh, we're going to just read it cyclically and we'll see what we can. Verse 15, he says, we know, uh, sorry, we do know, there was no advantage. Now, remember, he's speaking to, to the crowd, and he's talking to Peter. We do know that we've got no advantage in words over non-Jewish, timid, so-called Christians. We know very well that we're not set right with God by rule-keepers, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And so what do we know with Peter? Peter, we tried it. And we, we had the best system of rules the world could ever see. And I'm convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. We believe, Peter, you and I, in Jesus as the Messiah, so that we might be set right between God by trusting and desire in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Verse 17. But suppose we seek to be made righteous through God through faith in Christ, and then we were found guilty because we had abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ is dead as a sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I'll reach all down. Verse 19, back to the message. What actually took place was this. I tried keeping and working my head off to please God. How many people would have liked that to have done? It's a little lady, so I don't want to be writing the Bible. I tried keeping and working my butt off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman. So I quit being a lawman. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be a Christ's life showed me how, enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with it. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have, a, or have your good opinion. Now, I'm no longer living to serve God. Christ lives in me. The life that you see me live in isn't mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, let's look back on that. Isn't it clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, fear-pleasing religion would just have been abandonment of everything personal and key to my relationship with God? And no thanks to Peter. He was studious. God was great. If a living relationship with God with God could come about by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily, and I'm adding on the end here, and I also refuse to drag others into that cold, hopeless, useless religion. See, what had happened was when Peter um, uh, stopped sitting down and eating with the Jewish Greeks and he began to change his behavior, it started to bring a confusion to the gospel that they proclaimed to them because they understood that Christ was enough, that the, the, the finished work of Jesus was of all we needed for acceptance. And suddenly there was another message being communicated by the way that Peter and the rest answered to that was being reinforced by those that had preached the message. There was a group of people that followed Paul around wherever he preached the gospel 
and we can believe that they just go from one storm to another. They're following him around wherever he is. And whenever he speaks the gospel of God's grace, they will come and add something on to it. And we might think, well, you know, that's got nothing to do with us. We don't teach those laws and that ceremonial stuff. And, uh, but friends, we can so easily slip into the boat where anything becomes the measure by which we see to determine whether God loves us. It can be something like, I go to church regularly. Have you ever heard that before? But if the reason why we go to church regularly is to please God, is to keep His favor with Him, then we, we get into that. Maybe it's, it's, I was even thinking about this the other day, the, the idea that the signs and wonders and miracles, for some people it can be a, a religious thing. Maybe it's, just a, it's a, a form of self-seeking. I know that God's impressed by me when I'm seeing the sick healed, I'm seeing the dead raised, or whatever it is. Maybe it's whatever, the, whatever we put in place becomes a measure. And Paul speaks in here about the law. There's one thing, if you're not dead to the law, then it really is important to figure out what he means by the law. Because when he says, I'm dead to the law, he's not saying, I don't care about righteousness. He's not saying there's no, there's no somebody being bad or somebody being good. He's, he's not saying that I've become a lawless man. Like I'll just do whatever I want, whatever I, whatever I want to do, I can just do. No, he's not saying that. He says he's dead to the law. He still holds those eternal principles the Sabbath, eternal principles, things like love and justice. He, he, he holds to those things because they're in the very eternal foundation of his creation. They are in the very nature of the God that we serve, in the way that God reveals himself, in the way that God acts towards us, in the way that God rules and governs this world, love and justice are among them. He's, and Paul's not dead to that. What he's saying is that his, his previous relationship to the law has come to an end. So that the law has no further claim or control over us. The law, as it was given by God at Mount Sinai, was a, was a, we can read this in Moses, it's right there. It was conceived as a means of acceptance with God in the case of a sinner who obeys it. You come to Mount Sinai, they sinners, how can they be near God? And God says, I'm going to give you a, a set of laws. If you obey these things, then you're right standing with me. If you fail to obey these, then here's the ceremonial laws that are in place right standing with me, that means of acceptance, that I don't want to just strike you down at that moment. It, it wasn't there's forgiveness for failure, it's just holding back the forces of justice against me. And Paul's saying that my relationship to that law as the means by which I can have acceptance has came to an end. In the book of Romans, he uses the illustration of marriage. He says when a woman is married to a man, she's covenanted to him for life. She's, she, they are bound together for life. But if the woman dies, she's no longer bound to the husband. Or the husband dies, she's no longer bound to the husband. And in the case of the law, if, if the husband is the law, then it's the woman, not the husband. If you're married to this man, this overbearing, and that's what the law is, he's an unacceptable man. He's not, he's, he's never pleased or left happy. He is 100% sinful. Note your heads with that for a minute, and I'm joking, but don't do that. And so this husband is like, you make him a cup of tea, and he puts the sugar, he goes, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat that. You make it his own. He makes it. You have a sip, he puts the sugar, he takes it back. Two little sugar, he puts it back there. You know, so you, you, you clean the house as best as you possibly can. He's the husband that walks in and goes, he lifts up the sugar from the cup. He says, what's yours? Because he's, and he wants perfection. He's only ever pleased with perfection. Anything less than perfection is a failure. So he's a married to the husband. That's what Paul says. That was my relationship was to that law. And he's, he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. He, was, he sought legalistic perfection. He sought legalistic faultless. And, uh, and, they, and he could never, no matter what he did, it was never enough. He was never pleasing to God. And Paul says, then I die. Then the wife dies. And God raises the husband from the dead again. And, and she's no longer married to this person. That, that relationship has come to an end. His death brings to end the marriage. And now, instead of being raised up and married to the law, we're raised up and are married to Christ. And Christ has done all of this. And this is, this is um, I want to be married to this guy. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I wish I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. And I don't want to ever give the impression that I am this man to live at because I have my faults and everything else. But this is the husband that when, when the, the wife comes, and maybe somebody shares this also, with the cup of tea, he basically is so used to failing with the law and so used to not pleasing and filling up the fridge. He gets up early in the morning just to go make a husband's cup of tea. And, and it's such a good price for him. Puts his hand upon the cup. What do you mean? Because he's, he's been pleasing to the law. And he's been faithful with 
hear that God gave him to Moses. No one shall go. The second thing that Paul says is the application of forgiveness that uh, Christ has given him. He says he gets not only there's no one ever justified before the Lord. In other words, um, put right standing with God. But the Lord also proves to be powerless to produce holiness in the people. Colossians 2 verses 32, I think it is. It says, all you do has nothing to, to subdue or take away the presence of Christ. doesn't matter how white your robe is. doesn't matter how your walls are. It doesn't matter how many wars and wars you haven't made with government that you can't think of conflict that you can't smoke, you can't smoke, can't think of conflict, can feel it can't feel. Those laws cannot restrain the sinfulness that's in you. The only thing that can do it is when you are born again by the power of God. And that's why people have such a so hard to be rid of. And on the outside, just on the paper, we hear all these stories about them. And then later on, we find that they can do the things that took place behind the scenes. And that's why we hear always, let us down. Some of the guys that I've fortunate that I've met some of them such amazing men like like oh man I'd love to emulate Lance Armstrong or um, Hunter Mayer from Boston I mean just them truly of integrity and character and it's so exciting but all all the outside just took place and didn't take place on the inside and that's us it's all of us here but the gospel comes to change us I love what um, John Stott says about the fact that when we come to Christ nothing became stationary it's not like you go to the law courts and you get a piece of paper that says, you are now a minister and you will have um, yeah, the, 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 the education of the law and you become the master. It's a ministry that takes place. No, it's not. It's a changing. It's a, it's, it's a miraculous thing that the gospel can come, that the Spirit of God can come upon us at that moment and we are, that's why we are born again. So we become a new creation, the Bible says. Something, all the things that gets us changed and stationed takes place. We become new. And John Stott says this. He says, justification is not a legal system in which a man's status is changed while his character is left intact. A justification takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. So someone who is united to Christ is never the same person. Instead, he is a new person. It is not just his standing before God that is being changed. It is himself. That is who Paul probably is going back to the old life and even sinning as he's sinning um, as himself as he's frankly unconscious because there's something he shares that is done in the life I I feel like I was able to look down the road of my life and I've um, looked down and see what my life would be like let's say if I started on the right track and um, honestly I doesn't say now you have to walk down this road I, instead of i look down that path and there's and there's just darkness and i look down the path and i see the light okay that's what i want to know and i begin to walk this way and i begin to walk the road of faithfulness and and loving my wife and loving my children and i don't have to walk down that road it's not like oh well i'm rejecting it john stott i'm saying no he loves me I, why why would i not i'm changed by something like that the second thing is that i'm grateful the fact that we have been taken from um, eternal, eternal punishment, that we deserve it. It's not unjust. It's not unfair. It's that every single one of us um, um, wants from Him. It's what we deserve. It's the right and just punishment for us. I'm on death row. I'm that person that's on death row that's not saying, I'm innocent as you. I, you know, I, I just need to act. I don't know if I'm the man that I'm going to be ahead. I don't think about it. I'm completely innocent. No. This is you the person that goes out and says, am I on death row? I heard about a lady on death row some, some years ago, and uh, she was a drug addict, and she had a vision, and she was hearing her voice, and she was listening to her voice, and she was listening to her dreams. 
break those chains, I pray in the name of Jesus. Take the blindness off, Lord God. Open hearts and minds, Lord God, so deeper and deeper into your love, Lord God. Even as you take in me, Lord God, and take in these people, take us all deeper, Lord God. And then deeper still. And then deeper still. And if we had a thousand lifetimes, we couldn't plumb the depths of what it means that the Creator, the perfect, holy God, the Lord God Almighty, who is eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God, who needs no one and nothing, who has everything within Himself, died for those that rejected Him and slandered Him and betrayed Him and deceived Him and, and ridiculed Him, that they might be brought near and reconciled and forgiven and adopted and loved and Every 